0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person.
1: Our speaker this evening is the president of Christendom College in Front Royal, Virginia. He received both his licentiate and doctoral degrees in ascetical and mystical theology from the Angelicum in Rome. In 2002, Dr. Timothy O'Donnell was appointed a consultor to the Pontifical Council For the family by pope saint john paul ii he is a knight grand cross of the equestrian order of the holy sepulcher of jerusalem a frequent lecturer for ewtn dr o'donnell is also on the board of advisors for the institute on religious life the cardinal newman society and of course our own institute of catholic culture he's published two books heart of the redeemer and swords around the cross dr o'donnell Often, if not always, is always accompanied by his lovely wife Catherine, who's with us tonight. <laughs> they have nine children and twelve grandchildren, uh, residing in the wonderful Stevens City, only <laughs> inferior to Front Royal, but that's okay. Please join me in welcoming <laughs> Dr. Timothy. There O'Donnell. you
2: go. <laughs> <clears throat> Thanks, Andy. Appreciate it. God bless. Thank you very much, Andy. Good evening, everybody. Christ is risen it's a great joy to be with you all once again it's also a great honor for me to be able to pitch hit so to speak for professor mcguire professor mcguire is one of my great heroes uh had a relapse of his cancer but uh, seems to be doing very well and fighting it so prayers i'm sure are always appreciated but uh, anyway we'll do the best we can uh, as a pitch hitter Uh, Tonight, in order to do this, uh, I have to kind of give you a mini course on Irish history. Is that okay? Because that's what it's going to end up being. If you hate dates, you may as well leave now. But no, okay, we'll (laughs) we'll try to keep it there. But just try to think in terms of the big picture. The topic, the faith of our fathers, the glory of Catholic Ireland, is a very broad topic. Uh, And in order to deal with this topic, we have to remember the great achievement of Catholic Ireland before the persecution began. That persecution that was initiated by the Protestant revolt. We need to turn our attention to the past in order to chart a course towards the future. I'm sure many of you are aware of the difficulties that Ireland is going through right now, especially with that vote that happened just last year. Okay, difficult times. But as St. John Paul II once said, A people which forgets its past has no future. Forget your past, you're not going to have a future. And so many today have tragically forgotten the glorious faith-filled past of the Irish nation, her ecclesiastical art, the ancient hymns that her songwriters and poets composed, the beautiful poetry, the renowned sanctity, the missionary outreach, the love of learning. Long, long before the great emancipation that was achieved by Daniel O'Connell, the liberator, in 1829, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman knew of this great tradition and spoke of his appreciation for the role which Ireland, the Catholic Church in Ireland, had played as missionaries in the evangelization of Britain and the continent. And so we want to take a look at all of those things tonight. But holiness was such an important part of that great, great tradition. Catholic Ireland, since the arrival and mission of St. Patrick, remember Patrick arrived in the year 432 and labored in Ireland until his death in 461. Ireland became a center of a highly civilized life. The flowering of the monastic culture in Ireland, in places such as Clonmacnoise, Bangor, Glendalough, Iona, Monaster Boyce, Moville, just to name a few. I've given you a map, and all of those place names you see on your map were places of large monastic settlements that served as sources of spiritual renewal and also intellectual and moral fervor. It's important to remember that love for learning and the desire for God was a major part of the Irish monastic tradition. For example, when the Normans landed in 1169, you had the Norman invasion, the first time they came, 1169, the great center of culture and civilization that was St. Kieran's Fair City, the great monastery at Clonmacnoise in the center of Ireland, had been in existence for over seven centuries, for seven centuries, producing saints, scholars, beautiful works of art, such as the great high cross of the scriptures. When it was finally suppressed in 1552 by Henry VIII, that monastery had existed for over a millennium, over a thousand years. Ireland, from the 6th to the 9th century, was known throughout Christendom as Insula Sanctorum et Doctorum, the Island of Saints and Scholars. The list of saints named in I- by Irish chroniclers during this period is truly staggering. The Four Masters, the Octa Sanctorum, the Martyrology of Angus, all give us name after name after name of Irish saints. Even the great Saint Bernard of Clairvaux became close friends with Saint Malachy and saw Malachy's holiness. The two men end up being interred in the same grave together. And that eventually Malachy was canonized by the church. But the love for Christ that characterized the church in Ireland during these centuries, the love for the church, the love for tradition, the love for sacred scripture, Deep, deep love that they inherited from Patrick himself. The love for holiness and sanctity and the passionate desire to win souls for Christ was something that became a big, big part of the whole Irish tradition. Countless souls strove for holiness. St. Finian of Clonard, St. Adaman, St. Kieran, St. Brendan, St. Kill, St. Bridget, St. Ida, St. Moby, St. Ronan, St. Connell, St. Aidan, Fintan, St. Cronan, St. Coleman, St. Comgall, St. Asiscus. And then there were great, those are ones just in Ireland. You had these great missionaries like Aidan, St. Gall, St. Columbanus, St. Fiacra, St. Killian, St. Virgil of Salzburg. Great saints and scholars like Saint Clement of Ireland who became rector at Charlemagne's Great Palace School. The stone carvings that were done of these magnificent high crosses, many of which survive today. There were over 200 high crosses carved on the island of Iona alone. Manuscripts of breathtaking beauty such as the Book of Kells. I'm delighted to hear there's going to be a talk on the Book of Kells which was composed at the beginning of the 9th century. The Book of Duro, And then incredible religious poetry where many of the poets in ancient Ireland composed religious poems oftentimes fasted for a prolonged period of time before writing poems. I'm going to give you a sample of just one just to give you a flavor of that type of poetry. You can add a poetry, can't you? I'm happy to hear that, because if not, it's going to be a long night. All right. (laughs) This is a poem, early, written by just a poet, not a religious, you know, someone who was part of a religious community. Like thee, O forgiving son, may I be martyred in thy martyrdom. May I suffer thy passion with thee. May I, in thy noble life, sacrifice to thee my life. May I surrender my body in thy body. May I be poor in thy poverty, so that I be like Mary in distress. May the seven keen shafts of sorrow for thy death pierce my heart like hers. The thorns of his head, the spike in his footsole, the spear in his pap, the nail in his palms, may they wound me, O God, though it be not to pay for thy blood. May I bear the cross beside thee, May I drink thy drink of gall, though to drink it were to die of poison to me. May I sit with thee at the one banquet. Isn't that beautiful? That's the type of poetry that was produced by the ancient Irish poets. The Irish had an intense devotion for their saints, not just Patrick, Bridget, and Columkill, the three major ones, but for hundreds of local saints so significant to them. Familiarity and contact with this tradition of sanctity and learning is very essential. As Pope Benedict, when he wrote that letter to the Catholics of Ireland, when the sexual scandal abuse first broke in Ireland, he said that is the source of authentic renewal for the future. And what is required in Ireland today, as everywhere throughout the world, is nothing less than a new generation of holiness, a new generation of saints to rise up. The glory of these monastic schools that were just thriving centers from the sixth to the ninth century were referred to by Saint Bede the Venerable who tells us they brought thousands of students from the continent of Europe and from Britain to study. Those schools, those monasteries were the glory of Christendom during what secular historians call the Dark Ages. Now the assault of the Vikings, the first Viking raid came in 795. It certainly had devastating impact on the Catholic Church in Ireland, as it did in other kingdoms throughout Christendom, in Britain, in Belgium, France, and elsewhere. Devastating impact. By 830 AD, you had close to 26 monasteries in Ireland plundered by Viking raiders who came and devastated the countryside. Now, there were two centuries of battles that went on between the Vikings and the native Irish. Eventually after the victory of the great Bayan Boru in the year 1014, the Battle of Clontarf, their power was broken. And eventually they blended in with the native population and became Catholic. The church herself had begun to revive after the Viking chaos with the arrival of new orders from the continent when the Franciscans arrived, the Dominicans, and especially the Cistercians. The first Cistercian monastery at Mellifont was built in 1142. And by the time you got to 1272, there were 38 Cistercian monasteries all over Ireland at that time. Now after the Norman invasion in 1169, the success of the Protestant revolt in England, led to greater difficulties. The effort to conquer the nation, and part of that effort to conquest involved destroying the Catholic faith in Ireland. Irish resistance on the part of the Gaelic Irish chieftains and also the Anglo Irish who had settled in many of the towns was very strong. You had the Nine Years' War, a heroic uprising of clansmen against Queen Elizabeth from 1595 to 1603. That was followed later by the War of the Forties in the 1640s and the formation of a great Catholic Confederacy. Both of those ended in defeat and there were efforts to colonize with Protestant settlers loyal to the crown and loyal to the Protestant revolt. At the end of the forties Oliver Cromwell arrived in Ireland in 1649 and in a two-year period crushed the opposition and anyone who was papist at the end of that war who survived, were banished to hell or to Connaught, Connaught being out in the West. And out in the West, as was said, there were not enough trees to hang a man, not enough water to drown a man in, and not enough soil to bury a man. That's what they said about it's beautiful, but not very productive land, to say the least. Okay, you then went on to have the chaos of the Stuart monarchy in England. All right. You had a bloody civil war in England, which always caused chaos and difficulties in Ireland. You then had the restoration of the Stuart monarchy, and then eventually what became known as the Glorious Revolution in 1688, when William of Orange, William III of Orange, drove out the Catholic James II. And James left England and then went to Ireland. And then again, there was another great war to try to defend the Stuarts and defend the faith in Ireland, which ended in a defeat of the Stuart cause with the famous Battle of the Boyne on July 12th, followed by a horrible, more crushing defeat at Aram, and then finally the surrender of Limerick when a treaty was signed guaranteeing freedom of religion but was never honored by the English Parliament or the English Crown. Now, after all of those battles and wars, an effort to debase... And to degrade, the Catholic people of Ireland began through a series of what became known as penal laws. From 1695 to 1704, a series of laws were passed, which I'm just going to try to summarize for you briefly. If you were a Roman Catholic, this is all legislation that was passed, no Catholic could buy land. No Catholic could have a lease on a farm for longer than 31 years. And the rent that you were to pay was to be at least two-thirds of the holding's yearly value. That means two-thirds of whatever you made on your land went to pay your rent. And you could keep only one-third of that. When a Catholic died, his estate was not to be inherited by the eldest son, but would be equally divided among all the sons. You know why that's the case. Breaks up the farm, flips land, it ensures impoverishment, all right? But if one son became a Protestant, he could inherit the entire estate. We continue on, no Catholic could become a barrister, a solicitor, a judge, or a member of a grand jury. Catholics could not sit in parliament or vote in elections. Catholics could not hold public office. For example, a Catholic could not be a civil servant, a sheriff, or a member of a town council. Catholics could neither send their children abroad to be educated nor establish a school at home. Catholics could not be guardians of orphans. Catholics could not carry arms, join the army, or own a horse worth more than 5 pounds. Catholics were excluded from living in many important provincial towns. Initially, Catholic worship and the priesthood itself was outlawed in the city. Later on, when that was modified 100 years later, Catholics could worship freely but their churches could not have steeples or display crosses. Priests were not to wear clerical garb or holy emblems in public. They had to register with the government and take an oath of loyalty to the crown. Archbishops, bishops, Jesuits, and other regular clergy, monks and friars, had to leave the country. Catholic pilgrimages, especially the one to Loch Derg in County Donegal, were forbidden. Forbidden. This was the age of the Mass Rocks the churches were all confiscated. So in order to keep your job, not to be evicted, you'd have to go to remote glens. And there they would hew out these massive rocks and they would hide the priest. And he would say mass out in this remote glen, oftentimes they'd have to post lookouts because they would track them down because there were bounties. If you got a Jesuit, you got a certain amount of money. You caught a priest, certain amount of money would be given to you. You caught a bishop, even more money would be given to you. And so they would post lookouts and oftentimes the lookouts would wear a black cassock, even though they were laymen. No, because if soldiers were coming, they would try to catch attention and flee and they would pursue the man in the black cassock thinking it was a priest. And he might get killed, be hung. But the important thing was that the mass would continue, that the priest would be saved, and the sacraments would continue on. That's the type of age that we're going into. The age of the hedge school, where there could be no education, no official school. In the west coast and up in the northern part of Donegal, they had these large fuchsia bushes. And so when the men would go out with their sons and their children to work the fields, the men would stay in the fields and the hedge schoolmaster would come in the hedges and the children would leave the fields. They'd go in the hedges, rain or sn- snow or sunshine, whatever it was, and they would learn Greek. They would learn Latin. They'd learn their catechism. They'd learn the history of their country. But if you caught the hedge master. You could be killed and you could be evicted for having your children educated in violation of the law. Everywhere priests were banished and hunted. Yet despite this persecution and the legal hostility, the vast majority of people remained true to the faith. Finding solace in holy wells where they would conduct their baptisms or in monastic ruins. The only place, the monasteries were ruined and destroyed, but at least you knew the ground was consecrated, so they became burial places where you could inter your loved ones. And of course, those hidden glens. Still to this day, there's over 250 mass rocks around the countryside in Ireland. I remember going up and attending mass, first time I went to Ireland back in 1973 with a priest from Dublin, traveling with some young men. And I remember it was way up in, this, in the northern part overlooking the crashing Atlantic Ocean. And I remember it started to rain, but we said mass at that mass rock. And I remember I was so moved because when it came time for the consecration, everybody hit their knees, were kneeling in the mud, kneeling in the rain. But when he raised that host, we knew God was with us on that hill. And that mass was as beautiful as anything I've ever attended in St. Peter's Basilica but that was the faith, that was the tradition. Eventually, there'll be an uprising in 1798, brutally put down after that. Then an act of union, and in all of this time and suffering, the people remain faithful. You know, there was a great Irish poet, Thomas More, not to be confused with Thomas More, the great English martyr, but the poet Thomas More who having looked and seen all of this that was going on composed a poem called The Irish Peasant to His Mistress. Now he uses symbolic language and calls it a Mistress but he's talking about the Catholic Church. Catholic Church is The Mistress. Listen to the poem. Through grief and through danger thy smile hath cheered my way till hope seemed to bud from each thorn that round me lay. The darker our fortune, the brighter our pure love burned. Till shame into glory, till fear into zeal was turned. Yes, slave as I was, in thy arms my spirit felt free. And blessed even the sorrows that made me more dear to thee. Thy rival was honored while thou wert wronged and scorned. Thy crown was of briars while gold her brows adorned. She wooed me to temples while thou layest hid in caves. Her friends were all masters, while thine, alas, were slaves. Yet cold in the earth at thy feet I would rather be than wed what I love not, or turn one thought from thee. They slander thee sorely who say thy vows are frail. Hadst thou been a false one, thy cheek had looked less pale. They say, too, so long thou hast worn these lingering chains that deep in thy heart they have printed their servile stains. O foul is the slander, no chains could that soul subdue. Where shineth thy spirit, their liberty shineth too. Thomas More, all right? That is the Irish peasant to his mistress. Now of course, eventually, as there became to be more liberal attitudes, things began to change, and there were efforts on the part of the Catholics in Ireland to try to secure their political rights and liberty. Eventually, a great figure who's known in Irish history simply as the Liberator will come on the scene. Eventually, there'll be a Catholic Relief Act passed in 1778 that will allow Catholics to lease land for 999 years. 999 years. But eventually, Daniel O'Connell will form the Catholic League in 1823, and through a series of brilliant political maneuvers and elections, he will finally achieve the emancipation of the Catholic Church and the ending of all the penal laws in the year 1829. 1829. The persecution formally ended, but what was the state of the church at that time in 1829. After touring in Ireland, a Frenchman, the illustrious Count de Montalembert published in Paris in 1829 what he had seen in Ireland and a series of very interesting letters and so he just describes what he encountered among the Catholic people and I'm gonna let him speak what his eyes saw in the late 1820s in Ireland and this is what he writes. Often on Sunday, he says, when entering an Irish town, I have seen the streets encumbered with kneeling figures of laboring men in all direction, turning their looks away towards some low doorway, some obscure lane which led to the Catholic chapel, built behind the houses in those times of persecution when the exercise of that worship was treason." The immense crowd which endeavored to force an entrance into the narrow and hidden interior prevented the approach of two-thirds of the faithful, but they knew that mass was being said. They knelt in all the surrounding streets, joining themselves in spirit to the priest of the Most High. Very often I have mixed with them and enjoyed their looks of astonishment when they saw a stranger, a man not poor like themselves, taking the holy water with them and bowing before the altar. Often too, he said, he would look down from the gallery where they allow the women to sit up above in the better seats and the men would be down below and the priest would preach to the people at mass and he writes about this. This part of the church, he said, was given up to the men. There were no seats. And the population crowded into it in floods, each tide rising higher and higher until the first comers were pushed forward against the altar rails so packed that they could not move a limb. All that could be seen of them was moving mass of dark haired heads so close together that one could have walked across them without danger from moment to moment this mass moved and wavered. Long groans and deep sighs became audible. Some dried their eyes, some beat their breast. Every gesture of the preacher was understood on the instant, and the impression produced was not concealed. A cry of love or of grief answered each of his entreaties, each of his reproaches. The spectator saw that it was a father speaking to his children and that the children loved their father. He goes on to a little city about six miles outside of Cork where he had another experience he wrote about. I shall never forget, he says, the first match which I heard in a country chapel. I rode to the foot of a hill, the lower part of which was closed with a thick plantation of oak and fir and alighted from my horse to ascend it. I had taken only a few steps on my way when my attention was attracted by the appearance of a man who knelt at the foot of one of the first firs. Several other men became visible in succession, in the same attitude, and the higher I ascended, the larger became the number of these kneeling peasants. At length, on reaching the top of the hill, I saw a cruciform building, badly built of stone, without cement and covered by thatch, around it knelt a crowd of robust and vigorous men, all uncovered in the rain, though the rain fell in torrents and the mud quivered beneath them. Profound silence reigned everywhere. It was the Catholic chapel of Blarney at Waterloo, and the priest was saying mass. I reached the door at the moment of the elevation, and all this pious assembly had prostrated themselves with their faces on the earth. I made an effort to penetrate under the roof of the chapel, thus overflowed by worshippers. There were no seats, no decorations, not even pavement. The floor was of earth, damp and stony. The roof dilapidated and tallow candles burned on the altar in place of tapers. I heard the priest announce in Irish the language of this Catholic people that on such a day he would go in order to save his parishioners the trouble of a long journey to a certain cabin, which should for the moment be turned into the house of God, there to administer the sacraments and receive the humble offerings with which his flock supported him. When the sacrifice, the holy sacrifice, was ended, the priest mounted his horse and rode away. Then each worshiper rose from his knees and went slowly homeward. Some of them, wandering harvestmen, carrying their reaping hooks, turned their steps toward the nearest cottage to ask the hospitality to which they were considered to have a right. Others, with their wives riding behind them, went off to their distant homes. Many remained for a much longer time in prayer, kneeling in the mud in that silent enclosure, chosen by the poor and faithful people in the time of an ancient persecution. That's the state of the church at that time. Now, of course, they achieved their independence in 1829, but those of you who know Irish history know what happened shortly after that. 1845, just 15 years later, Horrible crop failure of the potato. Most of the tenants are living on that. Great source of carbohydrate, great source of protein. But that's all they had. Not that there wasn't other food that was being grown in Ireland. Wheat, cattle in abundance. That's why if you talk about the famine, the Irish traditionally don't call it the famine. They call it the great hunger. The great hunger. Now again, little was done and to give you a sense of the faith of these people and what they went through, I'm gonna give you a little bit, brief description from someone who was present, first-hand witness at Skibbereen, and this is what he saw. My Lord Duke, being aware that I should have to witness scenes of frightful hunger, I provided myself with as much bread as five men could carry, and on reaching the spot, I was surprised to find the wretched Hamlet apparently deserted. I entered some of the hovels to ascertain the cause. In the first, six famished and ghastly skeletons to all appearances dead were huddled in a corner on some filthy straw. I approached with horror and found by a low moaning they were alive. Suffice to say that in a few minutes I was surrounded by at least 200 such phantoms and such frightful specters as no words can describe. Their demonic yells are still ringing in my ears and these horrible images are fixed upon my brain. The same morning, the police opened a house on the adjoining lands and two frozen corpses were found, half devoured by rats. Within 500 yards of the cavalry Station at Skibbereen, the dispensary doctor found seven wretches lying, unable to move. One had been dead for many hours. By January of 1847, it wasn't any better. In huts I have visited, I have seen children reduced to skeletons. In some instances, others bloated beyond expression by hideous dropsy and creeping around damp, wet floors of their miserable cabins, unable to stand erect. It is too late to rescue the hundreds of diseased and stricken wretches from destruction. Their fate is sealed without a hope. Their earthly sufferings will speedily terminate. The following month an American writer and philanthropist went back to Skibbereen. This is his account of what he saw. We saw in every tenement we entered enough to stricken the stoutest heart. Half naked women and children would come out of their cabins. Apparently in the last stages of famine fever to beg a halfpenny for the honor of God. As they stood upon the wet ground, one could almost see its smoke beneath their bare feet burning with the fever. We entered the graveyard in the midst of which was a small watch house. This miserable shed had served as a grave where the dying could bury themselves. And into this horrible den of death, this noisome sepulcher, living men, women and children went down to die. Here they lay side by side on the bottom of one grave. Six persons had been found in this fetid sepulcher at one time and with only one able to crawl to the door to ask for water removing a board from this black hole of pestilence we found it crammed with wan victims of famine ready and anxious to perish. I could go on and on. Now the point here that I want to emphasize is for many of those if they were willing, there were kitchens that offered soup you could go get soup to relieve your hunger, maybe keep you alive for a while. The only problem is if you went to get the soup, you would need to apostatize. I remember a story told me by the late Father Seamus O'Reilly, wonderful priest, got to know out at, at Christendom, he told me the story of a priest he knew who went to visit an Irishman who was living right at the beginning of the 20th century in a dirty tenement outside London. He was very close to death. The priest went into the room in order to give the man last rites and to help him on his way towards eternity. And he found the man lying in his bed on his back but his left leg was out of the blanket, just sort of dangling there. And so out of compassion, he gently reached down and lifted the man's leg to put it under the blanket and the leg stiffened and pushed back. And he says, oh no, father, no, father. And the priest was curious and puzzled and said, why? The man said, well, during the famine, when my family was starving to death, true story, I was desperate, I didn't know what to do. And so I knew that if I went to a Protestant church, I could get soup. So I went up to the door of that church and I stepped in with my left foot. Then I was overwhelmed with horror at what I was about to do. I pulled it back, pulled it back. And that foot has never been under any blanket of comfort ever since that day. That's the kind of faith we're talking about. Even as late as 1852, after the famine, after Catholic emancipation, the aftermath of the Great Hunger with its legacy of starvation, fever, eviction, emigration. And today, sadly, people look back on that and say, oh, that's old, that's old. That's unhappy. Those are far off things. As if those should be dismissed. As if that should ever be forgotten. There was a landlord who refused to have a Catholic church built on his lands and threatened any of his tenants that if they turned their house into a church for the celebration of the holy sacrifice of the mass, they would be evicted. This is in 1852. Father Meehan priest out in Clare, County Clare, was concerned for the faithful at Kilbaha, which is at the extreme end of County Clare, way out facing, stretching out into the Atlantic Ocean. He hit upon an idea. We couldn't have a church. They wouldn't let us build a church, so what do we do? He's got a carpenter, a little carpenter. and he says, I want to build a cart. We'll put wheels on it and we'll make it a square cart and we'll put windows on the left side and on the right side. We'll put a wood fence, little wood altar at the end and we'll leave the other side open. And you know what we'll do? We'll say mass there. We'll put a little step ladder that I can step up. And then what we'll do, we'll build this. And he built it and became known as the Ark of Kilbaha. The Ark of Kilbaha. And what he did, since he couldn't have anything (laughs) on the landlord's land, the men would come and would take this, they would roll it out to the seashore. And when between the high tide and the low tide, when the tide was low, they'd go out on the shore, out on the beach, and people from everywhere would flock to him. And he would go into this little ark and he would celebrate mass there. And they would angle the carts, whichever way the wind was blowing, they'd angle it so that the cart would protect the sacred host and protect the priest for the celebration of mass and they went there Sunday after Sunday in all kinds of weather. Mass was celebrated, the sacraments were celebrated, marriages were celebrated, baptisms were held, all of it took place. This is 25 years after Catholic emancipation, okay? People came to see it. Eventually the press heard about it, came out to see this incredible thing, the Ark of Gilbaha and then they were so ashamed that people had to go out and kneel in the wet sand with the surf and the wind in the west coast of Ireland, you know what that can be like, that eventually pressure was brought to bear and finally on July 12th, the anniversary of the Battle of the Boyne, 1857 a site for the church was at last secured and the landlord relented. 1858 the church there was dedicated and that ark, that symbol of those people's faith is preserved in that little church. If you go out to Gubaja to this day, it was tough. GPS didn't help us. We had a horrible time finding it and it was typical Irish direction. Well first, you see that road down there, you don't wanna go down that one. <laughs> you know, you wanna go down here, go down about you know, three fields then you make a left hand turn where you see Patty's farm and then you, do, and was, we did finally find it. And in the left transit for the church, that little ark is still there enshrined there as a lasting memory. Although in some ways it's sort of sad. The people there have not forgotten and that was a beautiful thing to see. But as we look back on all of Irish history from the golden age of the monastery prior to the persecution down to the, you know, the more recent persecutions that we had with the penal laws, we have to reflect to the horrors of the famine. How many ordinary, very ordinary but heroic mothers and fathers in those domestic churches brought up and reared their children in the love and fear of Almighty God. What devotion they had to the ancient faith of our fathers, and I should add also, and our mothers, because the mothers were very much a part of that heroism as well. It's fatal for any nation not to look back on its history and to look back on its traditions, no matter how painful that memory might be. And these stories that I'm sharing with you, are some this is not any kind of poetic imagination. This is not an invention. This is a real and a heroic history worth writing about, worth reflecting about. It's a history written often in blood, pain, and suffering. But in a word, it's a history of the cross and the sanctification of a people and a nation. All Catholics all men and women, regardless of their nationality, whether you're Chinese, Polish, Italian, Spanish, French, English, Scottish, Welsh, it doesn't matter, African, whether you're from Latin America, indigenous people, everyone can learn from this. And because of this witness, everyone can grow and be filled with joy and with hope for what they achieved because there are countless Countless people unknown, known only to God Himself, simple priests with their people, simple religious embracing poverty, chastity, and obedience, laymen and women, sons and daughters who knew and loved our blessed Lord, who understood what He meant when He said, It profit a man nothing, nothing, if he should gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his soul. Such is the glory of Catholic Ireland. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you. There's much to recommend here. Um, I know I mentioned it last time Dr. O'Donnell was with us, but he wrote an article, Is Catholic Ireland Dead? A very timely article, obviously, um, but uh, gives much context for today. Go ahead, raise your hand, and let's get things started.
3: Yeah. This so, Dr. Mc, uh, O'Donnell, thank you very much for the talk. I was wondering, I was looking at the Lorica of St. Patrick. There was two lines that, that refer to um, to the mass while you were talking about it. I have noticed that in, a, um, in the past, St. Patrick, uh, when he was in slavery in Ireland, he loved the people, and so, and, and so when he went back, to Britain, he had a vision of the people of Ireland speaking to him saying, please come back, tell us us about your God. And but the thing was is that during back then he openly uh, celebrated the mass for these people after they converted. Why is it now that, um, why is the mass so in in secret, in secrecy of the home or or in other, or in other places, and not so closely connected with what the government has to go through. Like for for example, Mexico, and when and the, during the during the Crystale Wars or something like that. Why is mass in secret now instead of being so fully open?
2: That's a good question. It's all that's all a chronology question. Uh, when Patrick had the voice calling him to come back to Ireland, that was a dream that he had of the people sp- calling to him from the Folcutt Wood. That's before he was ordained a priest. He was a Catholic Christian, and so he went off and eventually was ordained. The Mass was outlawed during the Penal Times, you know, basically sixteen seventeen hundreds. Okay, the Mass is not outlawed now. The Mass is found still everywhere throughout Ireland. So the time of the Mass Rock that is the time when the mass was really being banished, priests were being banished. Uh, it was viewed as a threat to, uh, to the crown and their effort to sort of make, uh, transform into Ireland into a more obedient uh, country. So that's not what we're having at the current time. At the current time mass is readily available and when Patrick, Patrick you have, you're going back to the fifth century, the penal times would be much more, you know, late 17th, 18th century is when that would be taking place. So it's a, a sense of chronology there. Okay.
1: We've got two questions coming in from online. Lynn and Paul are wondering, is this inspiring history of the Irish people in defense of their Catholic faith? Is it still taught in their schools, public and Catholic?
2: Uh, Is Ireland remembering its history? Irish history is like a minefield. Anything you say, someone's gonna be upset and angry with you. But basically my experience is no, it is not being taught. Uh, Part of the problem that we're having now is I think there is a very hostile secularism in Ireland and also because of the troubles in the north. I know a number of you would have remembered the troubles up in Northern Ireland, you know, particularly late 60s and the 70s. There was a lot of tension, a lot of violence, a lot of terrorism that was going on up there. Uh, Any reference to organized religion, particularly in history, oftentimes is viewed as sectarian history. And sectarian, of course, is a pejorative term. And so unfortunately even when you go to historical sites anything that would make it sound specifically Catholic or at the same time anything would make it sound explicitly Protestant like Presbyterian or Anglican it's never mentioned. So you end up with something that actually is quite insipid with the result that no one's really attracted to it. And so we've had a number of students, good Irish students, bright students that have come. Uh, At first we weren't gonna do an Irish history, and we have a St. Columkill program we do every summer over in Ireland. Uh, And at first we weren't gonna have the Yanks come and teach Irish history. But then these Irish students said, we've never heard of any of these battles, we've never heard of any of this. And I said, well, we need to start talking about this. And I can understand it's a painful memory, you certainly don't wanna uh, go into any type of narrow sectarianism. It's the last thing for any Christian you wanna do would be foster hatred to bring communities. Everyone wants peace, everyone wants to come together. But at the same time, we have to recognize that historically, there have been injustices, there have been things that have done, and to sort of deny or pretend that that didn't happen is not really doing justice to the people who sacrificed so much and gave their lives and that type of thing. So, sort of long answer, I don't think it's really being taught. There are some reasons, some good reasons why they don't want to do it, but long term, I think it really hurts the nation and hurts the national memory in trying to downplay uh, for example, the sanctity of Saint Columba and columkill's mission to Iona. Columbanus, who was passionately in love with Jesus Christ, celebrated the mass, loved the Eucharist. I mean, these men and these saints were deeply and profoundly Catholic. Yeah, Patrick was a Catholic bishop. There's no way you can get around that. And so suppressing those things is not really helping. Whenever you suppress the truth, that's not a good thing. Dr. O'Donnell, thank you for a wonderful presentation. Oh, you're welcome. Thank uh, you. I have read that uh, during the potato famine, Ireland was a an exporter of food to the continent. All yes. kinds of foods. Meat, yes. uh, grains, and so forth. Uh, why did the people suffer so gravely could expound on that a little bit yeah well part of the problem was uh, most of the Irish at that time did not own their own land and they had been surviving on the potato crop for generations Uh, most of the grain the barley the wheat what they call corn uh, and cattle were owned by the landlords and so that was agriculture was the main money-making venture And so some might have thought that maybe the crop would have failed just for one year so with a little bit we can get by. Uh, But then it failed the next year and then the next year. Then in 47 they claimed it was all over and then in 48 it failed yet again. And uh, at that time, the economic theory was sort of a laissez-faire capitalism. That was the dominant view, and so the idea that government should not intervene in the economy. And so there were some shocking things. Where I remember a group of Shakers sent a whole shipload of food, which sailed into Cork Harbour, and as that's coming in, they're seeing all this beef being exported out of the country. But. Uh, it was, it, was, it was a very difficult time, and I do think there was a certain uh, religious and ethnic bigotry that was, was dominant at that time. Uh, now that's not to say there weren't good Protestant people and good Englishmen that were, were moved with compassion and did good things, there were. But on the larger scale, I think the colossal failure that you could have over a million people perish, well over a million people, and then others forced to emigrate, many of whom didn't make it because the ships were so horrible. Uh, and the evictions that were carried out by landlords because people couldn't pay their rent because they're starving, and you're kicking them out of their homes. It's, uh, it was a very dark time, Not one of the, not one of the best moments, for sure.
1: Question from Kathy over here, Doctor. Ah, thank you. Okay.
0: Thank you, Dr. O'Donnell, for everything you do for the ICC. Uh, My pleasure. I love the ICC. (laughs) We love you, too. (laughs) Um, uh, Can you recommend um, any uh, Catholic pilgrimages, or are they welcome over there, or would we have to go on a secular pilgrimage? And I I ask because I've heard on EWTN Our Lady of Knock. I don't know where it is. Um, but there are a lot of people in this room with Irish ancestors, and if we were to go and look up our history and learn about it, could we? Could we learn about
2: it? Sure, absolutely, you could. You can always go with me if you want to. <laughs> but uh, I'm, there are priests that take pilgrimage, like so many countries in Europe through old Christendom, whether it's France, Spain, Portugal, Italy. You can still find the tradition, and Knock is a beautiful Marian shrine right in County Mayo. Uh, the climbing of Crow Patrick, the mountain where Patrick spent 40 days fasting and came down ringing his bell, summoning the people to the faith, to baptism at the joy of Easter. That's something that's still on Reek Sunday in July, you have thousands of people do. One of the few remaining real sort of tough medieval pilgrimages, the Loch Derrick pilgrimage, which is a three day trip up to Loch Derrick in County Donegal, it's called Patrick's Purgatory, where Patrick had a vision of heaven, hell and purgatory, spent a Lent on this island but it involves a 24 hour fast from sleep uh, you're on bread and water for three days. Uh, you're walking around doing penitential stations barefoot. You don't get to go to your dormitory until uh, benediction the following night. It's tough, but it's really beautiful in many ways. It's serene, uh, it's tough. You learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about God, but that's a three day. It's open basically in the summer months, June, July, and August. It closes on August 15th, uh, the Assumption, Our Lady Day and Harvest. Oh yeah, Inside the Vatican is actually taking a trip to Ireland in the footsteps of St. Patrick's. So you might wanna take a look at that. Thank you for that, yeah. Robert Moynihan's a great guy. But a lot of times if you're going with a priest, uh, you can find great trips. You now if you look you know, in Catholic newspaper and literature and you find where it says, pilgrimage, generally you're going to be in good shape. Because most of the secular pilgrimage is just like, you know, green leprechauns, lucky charms, it's ridiculous. But even when they try to give you cultural things, it becomes a culture that's separated from the cult. The mass is not part of it, the liturgical year, the tradition, and there's so, because that's oftentimes viewed as controversial, sectarian, and that's, and a lot of times they'll say, oh that's very old. That's very old, and they use this word in a pejorative sense, and it just breaks your heart. But uh, there's still a lot of good people in Ireland doing good things, fighting for pro-life and, and all of that. But look, and if it says, don't go for a trip down, go, look for something that says pilgrimage. And if it has knock, if it has Cropatrick. Uh, Ballantubber Abbey in County Mayo where the Mass was celebrated without stop for 800 years. If they're going to talk about celebrating Mass at a Mass Rock, we do that every year. We take our students over there and it has a profound impact. We go to a a mass rock in County Donegal, right near Dune Rock where two priests uh, were actually killed at that rock. So you think, gosh, there's been bloodshed here in witness to Christ and for the mass. We always talk to the students, imagine how much we take for granted with the freedom and liberty we have in our country. We go to mass anytime we want. Would we be going if it meant we might lose our job? We might be kicked out of our home, or we might even be killed. How many Catholics would go then? So don't take that stuff for granted, but look for a pilgrimage.
1: Other side of the room with Thomas here. Uh, Thank you, Doctor, for the talk. What do you think about the legitimacy of the bull supposedly from Pope Adrian IV, in the
2: 1100s that the Norman invaders brought with
1: them about the status of Ireland and the church there?
2: I'd like to say it was a fake bull, but it wasn't. It, would, it was authentic. Um, and at the time, this is something that historians d- debate. They go back and forth. What was the state of the Irish church at that particular time? Uh, there were definite efforts to reform. There had been a number of synods that had been held. Uh, but if you're going to pick someone to reform, uh, of course... That happened to be the one English pope in history who wrote the bull. And uh, the fact of the matter picking someone such as Henry II to be a reformer, hardly a good guy. He's the one that killed Beckett. Also evidently we believe possibly had St. Lawrence O'Toole also struck and had him struck in the skull, which is something that uh, was eventually going to lead to his death as well. So the bull was accurate, but the primary purpose of the incursion was to help restore the church. Very little was done after that. And as a matter of fact, after the Norman invasion, it was not a Norman conquest as you had in England. It was simply an invasion. Most of the country remained independent. Many of the Normans who came in remained devout Catholics. Catholic, but... Uh, married Irish women and of course Irish women had babies and they sang to their children in Irish and so many of those ang- Anglo-Norman families became as they used to say more Irish than the Irish themselves so the bull was fu- w- was authentic but the bull was never actually fulfilled and of course what really throws the gauntlet down is when you have Pius V during the reign of Queen Elizabeth formally excommunicating Elizabeth ending her pretended right to that kingdom that was a total game changer, where suddenly, you know, to defend, the, to defend the, na- the nation and to defend the faith was something you were called upon to do. Is that, is that helpful? Good question. Thanks for bringing it up.
3: Uh, Doctor, you've given us a very vivid uh, explanation of the uh, faith in Ireland. Uh, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years, though, things seem to have really gone downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of hard for us, or me anyway, to imagine or figure out why things went south so badly and so quickly. Uh, Can you comment on that?
2: I can comment it's, it's, it's try to be brief because it's a complex question but what eight centuries of persecution didn't do uh, 20 years of prosperity did very quickly but uh, a number of things you had essentially a rural population that was agrarian that suddenly began to shift into the cities that was a huge cultural shift you had a cultural catholicism that was passed on from father to son but suddenly when you got internet money making there was a whole sort of disconnect that happened where many of the young people in Ireland today are more connected through the internet to people in the EU and the UK and America than they are with their own parents or their own grandparents and so all those type of ideas and i think the failure to catechize to teach it was oh we're always catholic i mean i met so many people that were were good people but they and they they think they're catholic but they know nothing about their faith and so the failure to catechize at at the at the schools even when catholic religion is taught there's nothing that indicates that the teacher himself must be a believing committed roman catholic so you can have a teacher saying well the church says this i think it's a bunch of malarkey but that's what i'm supposed to teach you what kind of witness is that and so you have you have a real situation and I think oftentimes in the church there are some wonderful bishops and there are some great priests and great religious doing great things but many times I think people were caught flat-footed they weren't ready for the sort of incredible influx of wealth and the money that happened to the point where 85% in the recent vote on abortion 85% of the 18 to 25 year olds voted for abortion 85%, most of those students went to Catholic schools. And right now there's very little in the way of liberal arts education where people aren't studying philosophy, they're not studying theology. And the scandals that have rocked the church have hurt the church terribly. And the church, there was clericalism, and uh, there was a rejection of Catholic morality. Sort of the revolution we had in the 60s and 70s did hit Ireland a little late, that was there. But the church in Ireland, because Catholicism was really dominant in a way it was never dominant here in the United States because it was given such an incredible position, it was viewed by many as a horrible betrayal. And so the secular press took that and kept writing and reporting and reporting and hitting on everything they could to the point where people, there was a lot of anger at the church. And uh, we were actually in Dublin the day of the election, when that, uh, when that vote came down. And the anger and the hostility in, against the church is incredible. In Dublin, which is overwhelmingly Catholic, 12% of the Catholic population go to Mass on Sunday. 12%. Go back 40 years, that would have been 80%. So, I mean, it's been a huge collapse, huge collapse. That's why I say there has to be a deep reform of the church, and we have to pray that the Lord will rise up new saints. New Columbus, you know, New St. Bridget's new people to come forward. And there are a lot of good young people that we have met who are working night and day, for example, on the pro-life? Uh, there's Youth 2000. There's a great group called Purity of Heart because pornography, like everywhere else in the world, it's a it's a huge problem. But pure 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 and heart is trying to do a lot of good work, and there's a lot of priests uh, with Youth 2000 and doing uh, retreats at Knock and elsewhere that are trying to wake up now and try to bring people back. And hopefully, you know, it's a it's a country where there's a strong and a great tradition. And I always felt that there's a Catholic soul just waiting to be inflamed. We Just need leadership as so many instances you have to have a leader that's going to stand up and say this is wrong this is right this is true this is false but articulate that with passion and with beauty and show that why it's true and show the beauty of truth so they can see once again the beauty of their tradition and their history and embrace it joyfully
1: thank you so much for your time dr
2: okay god bless you all thank you
0: Pray for us.